Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trials stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On our last episode, we concluded our four-part series on the testimony of Travis McMichael under the direct examination of his attorney, Jason Sheffield. Today, we begin a series on the prosecution's cross-examination of McMichael. Our coverage of part one of Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's cross is coming up after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's cross-examination of Travis McMichael covered three sessions of the trial over two days. This episode will focus on the first session, which took place on the afternoon of November 17th. Travis McMichael's attorney, Jason Sheffield, spent a great deal of time impressing on the jury the idea that McMichael's Coast Guard training made him well-versed in concepts like probable cause and use of force. Dunikowski, by contrast, appears to seek to elicit statements from McMichael that can be weighed by the jury against the laws relevant to this case, the most significant of which is the now-repealed Citizens' Arrest Law. As we have presented in previous episodes, the law is two sentences long and reads as follows. A private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. We now know that the jury will be instructed to interpret that law as follows, quote, A private citizen's warrantless arrest must occur immediately after the perpetration of the offense or, in the case of a felony, during the escape. During the escape, if the observer fails to make an arrest immediately after the commission of the offense or during escape in the case of a felony, his power to do so is extinguished, end quote. While Dunikowski's strategy in questioning Travis McMichael seems to hope for this instruction, she nevertheless begins by pointing out McMichael's decision to act on February 23, 2020, based on incomplete information and assumptions about events that took place before that day. And so you understand that there were only four entering auto complaints in all of 2019 in Satilla Shores. I knew that there were several entering autos, yes ma'am. Okay, so we have Kim Ballesteros, and she was in January, right? That's what she said, yes ma'am. Okay, and then we have the Herndons, and they were in December, like December 7th or 8th of 2019. Do you remember that? Uh, yes. Okay, and the Herndons had left their car unlocked in their driveway, and it was the white guy who had come up and gone into it, right? 
I didn't know that the vehicle was unlocked or the race of who was suspected. I just knew that they had stuff stolen from the vehicle. So it's fair to say you had incomplete information about who was committing the crimes in Satilla Shores? Yes. So the information you had being incomplete, you started making assumptions about who must be doing this, right? I didn't make assumptions at that point until February 11th when I saw what I saw that evening. And then you assumed this must be the person responsible for all the crime within Satilla Shores. I was under assumption that having Mr. Harvey been seen multiple times on the video on 220 Satilla Drive and the stuff stolen out of that house, that he has continued to come back to that house and to be, I guess, as brazen as after I witnessed him go through that yard and looked to be creeping coming in and then putting the lights on him and then him acting like he was armed under my, the way that he reached for his pants and then ran into that house and then walking around afterwards, seeing that and knowing that, that he saw me, that I saw him, and that he continued to go on and that he's been there several times, led me to believe that, yes, that, that these burglaries that I've been hearing about and that I knew about at 220 could have been him because I saw him and, and this is verified from the police and from the videos from that evening and from talking to uh, Officer Rash and Mr. Uh, Al Benzi that they see him as well. That yeah, this more this is a probability that this is the guy. Dunikowski also draws attention to Travis McMichael's proclivity to jump to conclusions based on rumors and limited information. Let's go ahead and break that down, okay? You understand that Officer Rash in December met with your father and told him um, about the fact that Mr. English had items stolen off of his boat and Mr. English suspected his subcontractors. I didn't know where my dad got that information. I did okay. not know that it came from Rash. And I believe it was my mother that told me that. And then my dad started repeating afterwards, but it was my, it was my mother that, that was the first one. Okay, so your mom told you that Larry English had items stolen off of his boat and suspected his subcontractors, correct? No, he's, that there's stuff stolen off the boat. And that, then when she said that, there has been people in this house. I didn't know who stole but I just know that there was, they have been people in that house, verified people have been in the house, and then there's been stuff been stolen. And that's multiple people in the house, correct? Yes. She then asks questions that call attention to McMichael's proclivity to take on the investigative role of law enforcement without the authority to do so, pointing out that Travis McMichael and his father and co-defendant Greg McMichael only called the police in this incident after assuming the police role. And uh, my son and I just discovered a guy. We think he may be living on the Bluff Creek Bridge on 17. We just went up there and made contact with a real shady-looking fella. And, he, you know, possibility he may be the one that's been breaking into all these automobiles right there. I just wanted to make somebody aware that there was somebody living under there. Was that the remainder of the call where he called the guy under the bridge a shady-looking guy? There's seems there's a few more to it, but yeah, I mean that was that was continuing that of that uh, audio, obviously. And you made contact with 
the shady looking white guy under the fancy bluff bridge while armed, correct? I did, yes ma'am. And your father had his gun on him too, correct? I believe he did. I, I would assume he did, yes ma'am. Okay. And did you brandish and show your weapons to the man? I did not. This was just some sort of pleasant conversation with the homeless guy under the bridge is what you're telling us, Jerry. Yeah, it came pleasant. Once I split between him and the, and the machete that he had there, and uh, asking what's going, you know, how's he doing, what's going on. He was, uh, he stayed right where he was. He continued to fish, and I didn't see a threat. Okay. But your dad still decided afterwards to call nine one one. Yes. Not before. We walked up on the guy. We we didn't, uh, you know. Once we investigated, once we saw that there was somebody there and what was happening, yeah, we still called to uh, to let the police know what's going on. You took it upon yourselves to go ahead and investigate it, correct? Yeah, well, yes, we did. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Prosecutor Dunikowski then revisits the defense assertion that Travis McMichael was well-trained in law enforcement techniques, calling particular attention to the so-called deadly force triangle, which is established when a weapon or explosive device is in effective range to cause death or serious bodily harm to persons or assets. So back in 2009, when you've taken your basic boarding officer classes, you understood what the Fifth Amendment was, right? Yes, ma'am. Right to remain silent. That's correct. And you heard Jason Seacrest testify that um, law enforcement cannot force anyone to speak with them. That's right. Okay, so you learned as part of your time in the military that you can't force people to speak with you. That's correct. Okay, and that if someone walks away, you have to let them walk away. Yes. In fact, you were trained that displaying a weapon may be considered psychological coercion, which is prohibited by the courts, and as a law enforcement officer may be grounds for suppressing evidence. Isn't that what you were taught? Under certain situations, yes ma'am. <clears throat> In addition, you were also taught that the best weapons retention technique is to not make your weapon accessible to anyone, right? Under certain situations, yes, ma'am. And you were also taught about the deadly force triangle, correct? Yes. And you were taught that deadly force is only to be used as a last resort, correct? That's correct. Dunikowski next calls attention to McMichael's training in the use of force, implicitly juxtaposing that training against the facts in this case, particularly the video of McMichael's shooting of Mr. Arbery. So this was one of the PowerPoint slides you were shown 
as part of the deadly force triangle and deadly force is only to be used as a last resort, correct? That's correct. You were also trained never to point a firearm at someone unless you intended to use it, is that correct? Under certain situations, yeah, yes, and then under certain situations, it could be used as a deterrent. Having used that series of questions as a sort of introduction to the areas of her questioning, Dunikowski zeroes in on the details that, she suggests, demonstrate that on February 23, 2020, Travis McMichael acted based on rumors and assumptions. All right, so on February 23, 2020, when your dad came in, and yelled for you, you didn't know where the black man was coming from. I had an idea, as he said, the running down the road, the guy's been breaking in. I've never seen him before. I've kind of had an idea that maybe he's coming from 220. But we'll go out and check out and see what's going on. But your dad just said he's running down the road, correct? Yes. And you didn't know where he was going when he was running down the road? I did not. And you had no idea what he'd actually been doing that day? Not at that time, no. Next, Dunikowski elicits an answer that suggests Travis McMichael knew his responsibility was to call the police and that it was their authority and not his to detain and question, quote, the guy, end quote, as his father called Mr. Arbery. Do you remember on about page nine of your transcript telling Detective No Hilly that Mr. Arbery's running, he won't stop. I said, that's him. Stop right there, stop where you're at. And then you turned to your father and said, call the cops, you know, there he is. Yes, I did say that. Um, so at this point in time, it's fair to say that you're in the car on Burford with your dad and you're instructing him at this point in time to call the cops because there he is. Like I said earlier on the first, I was all over the place in this statement. Uh, I, I said that to to Officer Nohealy, but at, at the time, I was still I was still under the influence of what happened. This was only two hours after the most traumatic experience of my life. Uh, I'm trying to give him as much information as I can. So from reading these transcripts, I realized that I was scatterbrained everywhere. When I said the pull paragraph, so pull, so pull up to him and say, hey, you know what's going on. He's running. He won't stop. I said, that's him. Stop right there. Stop right there. Call the cops. You know, there he is. Starts acting funny. Takes off running. I'm all over the place. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain what's going on, but Yes, I said it, but I don't think I, I, I don't think I was intending to say. There he is. Hey, you call the cops. It was. It was the same. Timing of the situation kind of muddled together. During this next line of questioning, Dunikowski shows the video by William Bryan of the moment Travis first shot Ahmad Arbery. So let's go back to the house. Yes, ma'am. Your father runs in, grabs his three fifty seven Magnum and you automatically grab your shotgun. I, that is the closest weapon I had, yes ma'am. All right, now with that particular shotgun that we have in evidence, you saw that, correct? Yes, yes. And you were here when Brian Leopard testified, correct? I was, yes ma'am. And it was loaded with seven shotgun shells, correct? It, yes, it was. All right, 
So all you had to do was take the safety off and pull the trigger in order to kill someone, correct? To shoot it was all I had to do was to, I kept the, all my shotguns, the action bar lock engaged, disengaged, the action down halfway and off on safety for more protective safety. Uh, so yeah, it was loaded if that's what you're asking. No, I was, I was asking all you had to do to shoot and kill someone was take the safety off and pull the trigger. No, take the safety off and then pull it, push the action bar lock up. And you did both those things in order to kill Mr. Arbery. Uh, when he was on top of me, I disengaged the safety, pulled the trigger, yes ma'am. The sound and image from the video show Mr. Arbery approaching the truck from behind. Travis McMichael is on the left side of the truck, pointing his rifle at Mr. Arbery. Mr. Arbery runs around the right side of the truck. Travis McMichael moves around the open door and around the left front bumper to the front of the truck, apparently seeking to cut off Mr. Arbery as he gets to the front of his truck. Mr. Arbery appears to run to his right, away from McMichael, but as he gets to the front of the truck, Mr. Arbery swerves back to the left, apparently seeking to confront Travis McMichael. Mr. Arbery's move towards Travis McMichael was so quick that contrary to McMichael's assertion, the video and sound of the gunshot would seem to suggest the action bar lock was already pulled and safety was already disengaged when Ahmad Arbery made the move towards McMichael. Prosecutor Dunikowski follows this playing of the video of the shooting by eliciting testimony from Travis McMichael that calls attention to McMichael's proclivity to act based on emotion and assumptions. So now, when your dad comes running in, he's all excited. You didn't stop him and tell him to calm down, did you? No. 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 So but, this is... Sorry, oh, go ahead. No, but I was trying to find out what was going on. Just trying to find out the situation. If I walked outside and I didn't see our neighbor that was aware of February 11th and knew that 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 this, the guy that we're suspecting has been in this house several times, ran by, was pointing down the road, then yes, I said, Dad, calm down. This calm down. But the totality of the circumstance and everything that happened the 11th, hearing, knowing that there was stuff stolen out of that house, that he has been continually breaking into this house. And then he just ran into the neighborhood with the neighborhood with the neighbor pointing down the road. That led me to believe there's probable cause that something has happened down there. Something has happened with this guy again. Let me make sure. Let's see what happened. Let me make sure everybody's okay. It's identify. All right. So you just said, based on everything, you think something had happened. Yes, ma'am. But you had no idea what had happened. At that time, I mean. All right. Dunikowski follows with another question, implying McMichael acts based upon assumptions made with only partial information. So when you got out there and you saw Mr. Albenze, you didn't say, Dad, go back in the house. We're not going to do this. We're going to call 911. I've told him when he jumped in the truck, I had, when I asked him to call 911, I wanted to make sure that everything was okay to see what was happening. To, verify to see if it's the same guy. If it was going down the road and if it was not the same one, then yes, I would, all right, this is not the same guy. This is a misidentification. This isn't the guy that police have been looking for and has been breaking in his house. The stuff has been stolen in. Let's continue on. But as we went down and identified him that yes, this is him. Let's 
let's try to hold him for the police to talk to him. Didn't you tell this jury that you assumed your father was correct and that's why you got your shotgun? Yes. Dunikowski's next line of questioning suggests that Travis McMichael's statement that he would not chase someone that he suspected was armed was either disingenuous or irrational, given that he believed the man who he encountered on February 11th was armed. Your son was inside the house, correct? He was. And this car seat was in the car? Yes. So when you get in the car and Greg McMichael goes to get in the car, this doesn't stop the two of you. They, the car seat being there and going, well, you know, Dad, we really can't do this. The car seat's there. Let's just call the police. It did not. Um, he kept saying, you go down there, go down there. Like I said, seeing the neighbor down there, seeing how he acted on the 11th, uh, like he was brandished a weapon, I don't know what's happened. I'm, I'm, I don't know if somebody got hurt. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I'm, I'm going to go down and investigate. It was... It was uh, so you're going to go down and investigate. Even though you testify, you're not going to chase or investigate someone who is armed, correct? I didn't know if he was armed or not. I did not know if he was armed or not. Just go ahead and look. I'm not going to just look at the totality of the circumstance. It's not, uh, not stopping you know, to the point and say, you know, are you armed or if he had a gun or anything, I would have backed off. I just wanted to go and see what's going on. That's, that's, that was all it was at that point. You didn't tell your dad this is a really, really bad idea that could go really wrong for us and we should just stay here and call 911. You didn't say that, did you? I didn't. Dunikowski builds on her previous question by suggesting that Travis McMichael was, in fact, looking for confrontation with Mr. Arbery, not waiting for law enforcement. Now, when you got inside the truck, you had your phone with you. Yeah, yes, I had my phone. And you didn't call 911 at that point? I did not. And you didn't give it to your dad to call 911 at that point? No, because I thought that he had called 911 and he had his phone at the time. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us on our next episode as we examine the second session of Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's cross-examination of Travis McMichael. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was written by Art Montrostelli. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracom. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.